This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumeble. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Pre-Japan photography update. Good. But before we start, we have some follow-up. And I'll go first. So, as you may recall, because that was literally our last episode, I discussed the migration path away from RCAP to Visual Studio App Center. And I would like to report two things. The first thing is that, like I said in the outro, I did present that at the uh, CocoaEds Montreal first event for this season. I felt it went great. I received a lot of good feedback. So if you want to see the slides for my presentation, you can find it at cocoaedsmtl.com I'm um, more or less a recap uh, of what we said in the last episode just adapted to uh, like live presentation in front of people with visual uh, cues I guess uh, that's what, uh, the way I would call uh, the presentation the second point is in the meantime we finished the migration itself meaning that if you recall in the episode I was saying that more or less our internal crash reporting builds were uh, my fully migrated and then i was waiting uh, our big next big release to be out which that happened uh, late september a bit after we recorded and now we already uh, released a second update that contains the update to the sdk so now we are receiving crash logs from the new sdk so we can consider our migration completed to vs app center and that's mainly it for my follow-up for Arkeap itself. Cool. Uh, before I get into my big follow-up surprise that I've been saving for the last two weeks, uh, I do want to point out that we will be taking a hiatus following the release of this episode, and we will be returning with episode 124 on November 24th. Uh, so don't be surprised if there's no episode for quite a while. Um, next thing is, of course, the show's anniversary is technically coming up. Uh, we're not going to be able to do a show for the show's anniversary, so I want to <laughs> talk about it now. But this also sort of made me realize something, which is I have spent exactly one year editing the show every week with Ferrite and the Apple Pencil. Ooh. Right. So the show has been edited entirely in Ferrite. Well, entirely in Ferrite is not entirely true. I pre-processed the, the things, uh, the files on my uh, MacBook Pro in Audacity, which I will have to stop using because that is not a 64-bit app. Um, and then I move those files over to Ferrite uh, just because I feel the compressor is better in Audacity. But now I'm going to have to deal with Ferrite's compressor and noise reduction. Um, so if you see fluctuation in the quality of the uh, of the show audio in the upcoming episodes, that's probably why. It could be um, a good time to revisit one of the, I think it was a noise canceling app that we were using for... I think maybe a couple of weeks before it started to crash with some of the latest iOS release at that time. But it could be a good moment to revisit that app, which, if I recall, was a Swedish app. Yes, it was called Bruce Free. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it, like the three times it worked. And then it stopped working, and I keep reinstalling it every once in a while, and it still doesn't work, so I don't know what's up there. Ooh. There was another one. Uh, I don't remember the name. I think it was just Denoise. It was a Russian app uh, on the App Store. And that has been getting a lot of upgrades over the last year, but I have not revisited it. So I might be giving that a try as well. Good to know. Okay, now that that's out of the way, I can get to my big surprise. Uh-oh. A big thing happened on October 1st that has implications on a lot of the podcast's recurring topics. Do you know what it is? On October 
first? Yes. Huh. Uh, I guess I'm sure you'll say it, and I'll be like, "Oh, you mean this?" But no, I don't have an. I'm pretty clue. sure you're not supposed to know what it is. Um, okay, but yeah. So, Japanese sales tax was increased from eight percent to ten percent in Japan. Now you might be thinking, "What does that have to do with the show?" Oh, I've seen that because I received the email from Apple saying, "Oh, by the way, the sales tax are increasing in those locales." Oh, right on the App Store. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, th- that makes sense. Um. So first off, just for uh, the Japan Travel Guide uh, follow-up, like if you're traveling to Japan in the coming months, please be advised of this change. It is no longer 8%, it is now 10%. Another recurring topic on the show is arcade operators who are struggling to stay open. And they were having a really rough time with the last bump in sales tax to 8% in 2014. And they are going to have an even harder time staying above water with this one. Uh, a number of relatively major arcades uh, in the scene have closed down in the last year uh which is really sad so i'm going to be very interested in seeing what that looks like over the next year as this uh sales tax change starts to have a more direct impact on their business but of course you all saw it coming it's fucking mobile payments of course it is (laughs) of course what else did you think it was going to be um so the uh, reason yeah, yeah, that yeah. this has to do with mobile payments at all is because of this cashless consumption tax relief program. Uh, it is a promotion that the Japanese government is running from October 2019 to June 2020. And the entire point of this uh, tax relief program is to incentivize merchants to install credit card and contactless payment infrastructure prior to the 2020 Olympics. Because as you may know, Japan is a cash, ca- is a cash, it's a cash society. Which still surprised me to this day, like that in, that in 2019, everything is based on cash. Not everything, but a lot of things is still based on cash in Japan. Yeah. And Suica is more prevalent than credit cards, which like for me, I don't mind that that much. Um, but if you're a tourist going to the Olympics, that might be a deal breaker for you. Um, so this cashless consumption task tax relief program, which I will just call the cashless promotion from now on. Uh, it only applies to Japanese issue credit and debit cards and mobile payment solutions. So that's where the loophole is. Suica over Apple Pay counts as a Japanese issue payment method for mobile payment. Um, there are also like, I, I was looking at the list before that. The list was so long of the dumb QR code payment apps that are oh, supported. No. It crashed Safari. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this list is so long. It makes me so sad because you have the best mobile payment solution already. It's called Suica, and now you you have like this deluge of shitty QR code payment apps all over the market. But anyway, that's another episode. Um, so the exact details about the cashless promotion are very complicated because it is rooted in Japanese bureaucracy. And of course, that's what they do. Um, but the basic actionable information you need to know is if you pay using Suka to pay at convenience stores, you are only going to pay between six and eight percent sales tax, depending on the goods you purchase instead of eight to 10%. Um, so immediately there, if you just want to save two percent on everything, uh, you buy in Japan, like just use Suica at convenience stores. If you are living in Japan or have a longer stay, um, there are other participating stores. However, the promotion is different for them. They will charge you full sales tax at checkout, and then they will refund you at the end of the month, giving you an effective sales tax rate somewhere between 3% and 8% if you used a credit card, debit card, or contactless payment. So I will link 
an article in the show notes to At a Distance, which is a fantastic blog that is basically all about Apple Pay and Suica. Who the fuck knew that this was out there? <laughs> uh, and they have like all of the nitty uh, gritty details if you are interested in finding out about them. You probably don't, though. It's not particularly interesting unless you are a big nerd like me. Um, and that's it for my follow-up surprise. Wow. Okay, that's great. So the gist of the story is if you use mobile payments, you save on, ta on sales taxes in Japan for until the Olympics? Until June 2020, yeah. Which is the start of the Olympics, I would say. I think it Before. starts in July officially, but yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I guess it's time to buy a shit ton of stuff in Japan using mobile payments. But only at the uh, convenience store, which is kind of a problem. <laughs> oh. It limits what you can get. Although you yeah. can do a lot of shopping at the convenience store in Japan. Um, so I'm going to be taking a lot of advantage of this. But I hope there's a lot of card capture Sakura swag that you can buy to your beloved co-host so you can bring back and save 2% on taxes. I doubt that. Oh, come on. <laughs> Then why why was that a surprise? I thought it because it was about that. It, it, it's just because more mobile payments fall up, of course. <laughs> oh my god! And on that note, I think we're, we're we are done with follow up. Yes. Good. So let's move into your photo management topic. I thought since it's kind of the anniversary episode, we should be talking about one of our evergreen topics. And I don't want to talk about mobile payments all episode because that's kind of too obvious. Uh, but one of the other sort of recurring topics on the show has been our photography gear and our photography workflow. And I think it's been a little while since we last revisited it. And there have been some pretty significant changes in my setup recently as I prepare for my trip to Japan. So I thought, why not revisit it now? So this episode is going to be split into three facets. Uh, I'm going to talk about lenses, my camera body, and my workflow. So let's start out with lenses. Um, I think we detailed this on a previous episode, but basically I, I had three lenses. I had a 1655mm kit zoom lens. Uh, by the way, I have an APS-C sensor camera, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I have a 16mm kit pancake lens. And I had an adapted 28mm f2.8 Minolta lens from a, from an old camera. And what I was in the market for was I wanted to get a fast prime lens in the 24 to 35mm focal length range, ideally with autofocus and image stabilization. I, I mentioned autofocus because that adapted 28mm f2.8 lens is manual focus only because it's not an electronic lens at all. And... If we go back a couple years ago when I was last looking at these lenses, the options were quite limited for APS-C sensor cameras. There was the Zeiss Sonar 24mm f1.8. Uh, the problem is that was really fucking expensive. And the other one was the Sony 30mm f1.8 OSS. So it had optical steady shot, which is great because I don't have the most steady hands. Um, but it's also really well known for lots of chromatic aberration. Uh, and I think like chromatic aberration can be a cool thing for style sometimes, but not when it's the default on most of your photos. It turns out that in the meantime, Sigma released a bunch of cool lenses for E-mount. Uh, the trifecta of E-mount prime lenses are considered to be the three sharpest lenses on E-mount right now. Uh, and those three lenses are the 16mm f1.4, the 30mm f1.4, and the 56mm f1.4. They sort of form like the three lenses you probably want to buy if you have an E-mount camera right now. 
And it turns out that all of them are faster and sharper than the Zeiss option that I was looking at, the 24mm, well, I was looking at, I was drooling at because it was the good lens, but it was the expensive lens that I was never going to be able to buy. So once I sort of found out that these lenses were out there, I was sort of hesitating between the 16mm Sigma and the 30mm Sigma. Uh, I really, really like 16mm focal length on APS-C sensors. I've mostly been using the 16mm pancake lens because A, it's portable, and B, it's not a zoom. Uh, I don't really use zoom very much. But the thing is, I was looking at my lens collection, and I was like, I already have two 16mm lenses and I don't really want a third, so ultimately I went with 30 millimeter, and especially since it's probably just more versatile in the end anyway. Um, so that's what I did. I bought a 30 millimeter f1.4. It was uh, on sale at a local, uh, well, not a local, but at, at a photography stuff chain, uh, and I got it delivered and basically showed up like the next day, which was kind of nuts. Um, so yeah, I'm still getting used to the 30 millimeter uh, focal length because I'm so used to 16 millimeter that I just think in that uh, <laughs> in that focal length, which is kind of odd. One of the things that kind of sucks about the Sigma lenses that I mentioned earlier is that they don't have optical image stabilization, which, like I mentioned, it was something I would have liked. Unfortunately, like I think this is sort of a product of the time at which the lenses were released. Uh, these E-mount lenses were started being released around 2016. And what happened during that time is that modern Sony bodies have in-body stabilization now, so there's no real point in putting stabilization into the lens as well. Uh, so if you have like a mid-range Sony onwards, you're not really going to see that big of a difference if you have optical image stabilization in the lens. And it's kind of only a bigger deal if you have a older camera. Um, so Sigma didn't choose to include it in their lenses and that's just why it wasn't available as an option. Uh, one of the things that I found kind of unfortunate about uh, my 30 millimeter f1.4 right now is that autofocus speeds are slower than I'm used to with the kit lenses. I can't really tell if this is due to the lens design itself or just because like I have an older camera body and it has rudimentary autofocus and the lens maybe was designed for a more advanced autofocus system and more modern bodies or something. Uh, judging by online comments, I kind of have a feeling it might be a combination of both. But yeah, so I, sp I spent like that, uh, however much money, I think it was like 400 bucks to get uh, the Sigma Prime lens. And so, so far, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I think it was a worthwhile uh, purchase. I think uh, I took a couple portraits and my mom took a portrait of me while we were out testing the camera and the photos are really good. They have some nice bouquet. I've just really liked the results I've had from it so far. And I'm really excited to see what it's going to give me when I'm in Japan. Um, I have a pretty beefy weekend planned for, uh, for my first weekend in Japan. Um, on the first day, I'm going to be going to the Saitama Kaogoe Festival. And then on the next day, we're going to Karuizawa in Nagano Prefecture, uh, which are, I'm assuming I'm going to have a lot of stuff to take photos of, uh, during those days. And I just wanted to have, a better lens so I could take some better photos and I know that it's going to last me a lot longer. I'm going to get a long, uh, lots of longevity out of this lens. So I'm kind of excited to see where it takes me. Now let's talk about the body. Um, so my camera is, uh, Sony NEX three. Uh, I purchased it back in 2011 when retina iMac, I'm iMac. No, when retina iPad rumors were starting to pop up. 
And the primary reason for that is I had been excited. Uh, I had gotten iPhone 4 the year before, and I had been taking a lot of photos with the iPhone 4, and I sort of was getting a lot more interested in photography. But I was still finding that the iPhone camera was a little bit too limiting for what I wanted to do. And I knew that I was going to go to Japan the next year and I wanted to have a camera that was able to capture good photos while I was in Japan and sort of all came together. And it actually turned out pretty well because when the iPad 3 came out with the retina display, I looked at my old point and shoot camera photos and they were all smaller than the size of the display. And uh like my dad often likes to point out that like, we had a digital camera that was like three megapixels or whatever. And the prints that came out of that were amazing. It turns out when you're actually scaling to fixed pixel displays, scaling works very differently than when you're printing onto paper and you can't actually have like good scaling. So it scaled very poorly on the uh, iPad three and it didn't make my old photos look that good. But now I sort of see a problem brewing with my camera, and that is that my camera shoots pictures that are about 4K resolution, and everyone's talking about 5K and 6K displays, uh, which has me a little bit concerned that maybe it's time to step up to a new body that's more capable, especially since most of the viewing of my photos happens on screens and not on prints. I'm kind of concerned that the Sony E-mount body lineup right now isn't exactly in its greatest spot. And to understand sort of what's going on with Sony cameras, I think I need to take a brief history lesson of what happened (laughs) at the start of the decade. Because the start of the decade, Sony was in a very experimental phase with their cameras, and it was fascinating to follow what they were doing. Uh, At that point, they were more or less driving the mirrorless uh, market of of cameras. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. But they were just doing a bunch of crazy shit. from 2010 to 2015, they did like all of these products that I'm going to list. So they did the E-mount itself and the NEX cameras, which were the first APS-C sensor mirrorless cameras that Sony put out. They did the RX100, which was a high-end, less than APS-C size sensor point-and-shoot with a Zeiss lens. They did the mm. RX1, which was a premium full-frame point-and-shoot. They did the A7, which was the first mirrorless full-frame camera on E-mount. They did the QX1, which was an e-mount camera that you could mount to the back of a smartphone and use it via a weird application. And oh yeah, I forgot about the QX1. I love the QX1. Like I don't think it actually works today if you have one, but it it was such a neat idea and a weird gadget. And all of this innovation is happening in parallel to Sony's ongoing traditional SLR and SLT business running on the Alpha A mount. But what happened by 2015 is that it was sort of time for Sony to sort of look at what the successes were and call down what their products were. So the NEX line was a huge success. Uh, they spun off, uh, the NEX brand was a spinoff of the Alpha brand. Um, but the product was so successful, they were, they were like, we don't even need the spinoff brand anymore. So they discontinued that and they just brought it into the main Alpha product line and then started their crazy numbering scheme that makes no sense. Uh, the RX100 was a huge success, but surprisingly not as a photo camera. It became huge amongst YouTubers and bloggers. Uh, and nowadays it mostly gets updates related to video performance and not photo improvements, which I don't think anyone one really saw coming when the original camera was announced. The RX1 never really hit the performance sweet spot for its price. Uh, early models had underwhelming autofocus and the newest model, which was released in 2015, had a defect that could cause light leaks. 
And ever since then, we've sort of never heard anything about the RX-1 ever again. And that's because RX-1 buyers were all buying the A7S, which was a much more flexible product and a better value. This is the mirrorless full-frame product. And the difference in body size was not actually that significant. So like, it was just more flexible and better. So why not get that instead of getting the point-and-shoot version of it? The QX1 was a really neat gadget, but I don't think anybody bought it. Uh, so that like went to the garbage almost immediately after it was released, uh, which kind of sucks because it was a neat idea, but it, it makes total sense. Uh, the plot twist that nobody saw coming is that the alpha SLR and SLT business is dead. It no longer exists. Everything is mirrorless now at Sony. Everything is Ooh. E-mount. Oh, I didn't know that. They yeah. completely killed the DSLR. Wow. I think they're still selling the last models, but they have not announced anything since basically 2015. Wow. Okay, that I didn't know. So Sony is all in on mirrorless, and it makes sense because they are currently basically the kings of mirrorless. Uh, there is some debate. Like, if if you're doing... If you're doing mostly photo stuff, Sony is probably the better bet. If you're doing video stuff, you're probably going to want to go with Canon. Um, but they're at the top of their game right now in mirrorless. So NEX and RX100 turned out to be the cash cows. And as phone cameras kept getting better and better, they sort of felt that if they wanted their products to sort of stand out, they had to bring the lines up market. So unfortunately, what that means is that Entry-level Sony mirrorless cameras haven't really seen a revision since 2014 and have gone up in about $150 in price. Now, I do need to point out that all of these prices are going to be in Canadian, and there has also been like massive uh, exchange rate fluctuations since then. So it's not all going up market. It's partly exchange rate and partially up, up market. All of the action in the Sony mirrorless market right now is happening in the rapidly moving and super confusing mid-to-end uh mid to high end of the product line where camera bodies are costing somewhere between $1,200 and $1,500. Uh, just the bodies. Hmm. Which is rather pricey. It is rather pricey, yeah. The entry-level Sony mirrorless cameras aren't bad cameras. I want to point this out. Like, uh, I'm the guy who's getting a lot of longevity out of a camera that was released in 2010. Uh, and that camera is still very good. It's just not necessarily up to spec the specs that I want it to be. Um, and the, my main concern with the entry-level mirrorless cameras right now is because they're five years old, I don't expect you're going to get as much longevity out of them as I did when I got my NEX3 and we fast forward today. Uh, I don't think you'll get a similar like almost eight-year lifespan out of them if you buy them once they're five years old. And that sort of puts me in an awkward position to upgrade. Staying on the low end seems really risky, and it doesn't feel like it's a big enough upgrade from what I already have to justify the $600 or $700 cost of a new body. And upgrading to a mid-range model will feel like a significant upgrade for sure. Like there have been a lot of big changes in the mid-range of uh, Sony mirrorless cameras since the very first model. But it feels a lot to spend for a camera that I basically use like twice a year. Like, yes, I use them intensely twice a year. Uh, but once that opportunity is over, I go back to taking photos with my phone camera and like, I, I'm sure if I were to spread out like how much my camera cost over how many years of longevity I got out of it, I, I would probably be willing to pay twice as much, but it's just, it's hard 
to think about money and stuff like that. <laughs> like when stuff crosses like a thousand dollars, it becomes a different game of evaluating things. And there are so many thousand dollar devices in my life already that having another one to keep on an upgrade cycle is stressful. Although the upgrade cycle would ideally be closer to a 10 year upgrade cycle and not like two or three years like phones and iPads and shit. Um, but all of this thinking about camera bodies and lenses and all that stuff made me realize that I think I'm more attracted to the notion of an interchangeable camera lens than an interchangeable lens camera. Uh, and what I mean by that is I don't actually want to swap out lenses that often. I'm actually a lot more interested in having one versatile lens that can do a pretty good job in 95% of scenarios. And then the value that I find in the lens mount system is being able to upgrade the brains behind the lens, not the lens in front of the brain. Like, it's too early to tell if the Sigma 30mm uh, lens is the one. But once you find the one, then it just becomes about, like, upgrading the camera body when it stops being relevant to the realities of today. While I figure out what to do with my uh, camera body, I sort of have taken a half step. Um, Ooh. Yeah, so Sony is notorious for less than stellar camera battery life, and my camera is no exception. Um, and since I've got like the big weekend planned uh, for my Japan trip, I was thinking of picking up a second battery because I'm not really sure if I'm going to be able to charge uh, between those two days. So I ended up getting going with a micro USB charging station that can charge two batteries at once and comes with two third-party batteries. Now, normally I would be skeptical of third-party batteries, um, but the batteries I got were from Rav Power and the charger was from Rav Power. And right now they're a pretty reputable brand in charging and batteries. So I decided to take a chance on them. Do you want to know a funny story about, in theory, buying two batteries because everybody tells you to buy two batteries? What's that? So I bought my camera just a bit after you. Like I bought it in uh, fall 2010 and I consulted with your dad, of course, at that time. And he was one of the many people say, you should buy two batteries. Guess what? I never bought second battery. But you also don't really use your camera much anymore these days. So True, but a bit like you, when I use it in trips, I've realized that I can literally go out for a, the whole day take all the photos I want like when I went to Costa Rica in 2017 that's what happened like I will go out for the whole day yes I was mainly using my DSLR but a bit of uh, iPhone photos be okay for the whole day put it on a charger and then it will be ready for the next day so I was like at that point and I did my whole six months in Sweden like this I was like at that point why buying a second battery because this is good enough if you contrast that, though, what if you contrast that with the GoPro, which is also another <laughs> camera that is uber bad with batteries, more or less two weekends ago when I went on the racetrack, I went through two batteries and had to recharge the third one while driving, literally. Wow. And literally, I was able to do three 30, three 20 minute sessions. So, like, more or less like 60 minutes of recording before a battery will be around 20%. Mm. And I wouldn't risk it for maybe a fourth uh, session just because like I it would just literally die in midway. So I can understand that buying a second battery could really help you, especially if the Sony cameras and for one or two that the Sony cameras are rebound batteries that like it's crazy how some devices are uber like performant with one battery and some of them are like they just need big batteries or just need more power. 
Yeah, it's kind of strange. I mean, like, I've only had the camera's battery die on me like two or three times, but the times that it did die were times that I wish it hadn't died because I was like right about to change and go to a very photo, <laughs> a place where I would want to take photos, basically. Right. Um, like the first time I went to Enoshima, I went to, I wanted to go to the observation tower and basically my camera died like midway across the bridge to get to the observation tower. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fun. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess all of this to say is if, I'm surprised that you got burned more than once because personally, my thinking of it was like the first time I get burned, I'll be like, you know what? I'll buy a second one because of that. And what I realized is with my Nikon DSLR, it's like it never happened. So we never bought one. Well, the the thing that mostly made it that I didn't buy a battery before now is that previously I was by myself and therefore I could just say okay well I'll just come back here when my battery is fully charged instead mm. uh, but now the plans aren't up to me so I want to be able to guarantee that my camera is going to be there working the whole time uh, so yeah two batteries and a more convenient charger for less than the price of a single first party battery is a pretty good deal um, but uh, like <laughs> wow okay yeah yeah, but like it's too early to say how good they are in practice because right now the only testing I've really done is I've put them in my camera and the camera boots. That is like my review right now. Okay, I would like to just quickly mention, I'm sure we're not done talking about our hardware, but to this point, nearly, what, like 30 minutes of a recording, I think I've spent too much time on the A7, the Sony A7 Wikipedia page for mm -hmm. my wallet so i think i should just click x here and hopefully your hardware section is uh, close to be done because my wallet might suffer at this we're, point. we're at the end of the hardware section although since i am going to japan on tuesday i do have to point out that like if you think it's bad just reading a wikipedia page like i go to japanese electronic stores that have entire floors devoted to just cameras and i get to try all of these things every year and it's even worse because then I, I have to go back and use the piece of shit in my bag instead of like the A7R or whatever. Okay, so just to summarize, your plan right now for hardware is, of course, uh, will you be bringing more than one lens or you'll just be bringing the new 30 millimeter lens? I'm only bringing the 30. Usually I only bring one lens. I think one year I brought two, uh, only because I wanted to try my 28 millimeter Minolta manual focus and that did not last very long because I am not <laughs> a fan of potentially screwing up the photos for my vacation um, but yeah I just want to really get used to this lens and I know now that I've used it a little bit that the results are going to be very solid so I'm not worried so much about it okay and then for for the body upgrades it's literally just getting more batteries and then you're still keeping uh, your NEX 30 I am praying that Sony does something to the Alpha 5000s in the next year. Uh, the 5000s haven't been touched since 2014. So hopefully, I don't know, um, fingers crossed, I guess. Um, but if they don't do that, then I will probably have to consider something in the 6000 line, which, I mean, at least I don't have to pay a plane ticket and stuff next year to go to japan because it'll be the olympics so i'll have extra money on hand so maybe that's where it'll go who knows mm. before we move away from hardware i do have a quick note because of course the main reason why we are going to a long hiatus is because both yannick and i are going uh on a trip uh 
And I wouldn't say I bought a new camera, but I kind of bought a new phone earlier than what I've expected because of that. So, yeah, yeah so I haven't received it uh, yet, but uh, this year is more or less my, like, usually my, the year where I would upgrade, I would more or less upgrade my phone every two years. And because of the trip to Walt Disney World, Walt Disney World, excuse me, uh, I was kind of thinking of delaying my upgrade of phone. And with the iPhone 10 that I bought two years ago, I also bought it late. Like literally what I mean by late is I bought it in November. Usually I really upgrade when they release. So I was planning to do that. And in the last week, I was A, looking at my options. I was like, A, should I buy it before and get advantage of the new camera upgrades or should i just wait after when maybe it's more appropriate for the wallet but uh can i guess what happened you know what happened because i sent you a screenshot of my apple order but no no, i I know what you got but i i want to guess like why you actually like uh oh okay yeah for sure (laughs) gave up and bought one you saw deep fusion (laughs) oh my goodness wow uh no. Deep Fusion uh, ASMR. Yes, yes, that was quite ASMR-like, but uh, no, it's not because of that. I I think, uh, so I went camping recently and uh, with one of my friends uh, got it and I saw a lot of nice pictures that he did. And also I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not sure I might, I haven't decided yet, but I'm not sure I would be bringing my big camera to this. Oh, damn. So I don't know. Like, I really don't know. I'm sure I will. But I'm still thinking about it. And in the recent years, I've, I'm really, really, really like using my iPhone camera a lot, especially with the iPhone 10 with the double cameras. So like, I kind of feel your pain with like, what should I do with my like better camera, quote mm-hmm. unquote? Um, and right now I kind of not fix this problem, but kind of stop. Maybe a bit of the bleeding by just saying, oh, no, we'll pull the plug. We'll just get the latest phone because it's going to be a major improvement. But, yeah, I'm kind of still unsure about what would I do to replace my DSLR. See, the the thing that actually made me really appreciate my camera was two trips ago, I guess. Yeah, two trips ago. Well, even last trip was sort of like this, too, where I was in a lot of environments where I was in a lot of low-light environments, and the low-light performance on my camera is absolutely fucking bonkers. Like, even with an f2.8 lens like I had before, the results I was getting were so amazing that I came home and I was like, (laughs) my jaw was on the floor looking back at the photos. Uh, One of the things that I'm thinking of in particular is uh, the switch reveal event. When I went to that, mm, a lot right. of the wide-angle photos I got of that event were amazing, uh, and I really like like those. And then uh, last year, we went to a Robot Restaurant, which is a tourist trap in Shinjuku, um, but it is a very wacky, uh, <laughs> wacky tourist trap um, where they do a crazy show with mechanized robots. Oh, uh, it looks fun basically like a weird music video uh not quite a musical but it's like a weird play slash musical combo with a lot of dance and instruments and giant mechanized robots and all of that is incredibly low light and some of the photos like i posted one earlier today of um 
I don't know if you saw it. It's basically like these dancers with a bunch of lasers, green lasers. No, I did not. You didn't see the notification. I even mentioned the <laughs> the podcast account. Oh, but, but yeah, no. uh, sorry. Like looking back at all of the robot restaurant photos, like those were incredibly low light and they look amazing. So when I compare that to the photos that I see coming out of my phone and like, it's true that at the time I was still running my iPhone SE. Now I'm on a 10 R. So probably the photos are going to be significantly better. Uh, but you just appreciate it when you take photos that highlight your camera's strengths, like the bokeh that I get from the new, uh, the new lens I got, I'm sorry, but I see the difference with portrait mode, so I can't help but judge it on on that uh, merit. Like there, there's so much more quality in what I get from my camera than what I see from portrait mode and low light performance, and that tends to be the kinds of photos that I like to take anyway. So that's a nice picture. I just pulled out the, the picture you were referring to, and that's from your camera from two years ago. It's from last year. Oh, yeah, it's a nice picture. Yeah. Hmm. So yes, uh, I agree. I, I have nothing else to say on top of everything you just said because you are right. Like literally, that's that. I mean, that's kind of the theme of the show. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know you would say that, but, <laughs> but yes, even if I knew you would say that, you're still right. Uh, for this part, not for everything, but for that, <laughs> I agree. And that's why it is making it hard. So I'm guessing that we will be discussing that. At some point, not soon, but I'm sure at some point it will come back. That's, I guess that's why it's part of our evergreen topics because I think I like, I like photography just enough to care. And mm-hmm. also, of course, like we're literally tech nerds. So of course, like photography and like just getting a new gadget is always like it, uh, triggers our good tech nerd feelings when you get a good new camera and just look at articles and reviews and all that stuff. So there's always that side of things. Yeah, if you look at my interests, it's like video games, photography, DJing, all stuff that has gadgets you have to buy. <laughs> yes. So I'm sure uh, I'll have to maybe look into this because like your ca- your camera, mine is also more or less 10 years old. And I wouldn't be surprised that in the next few years, like the amount of trips will go back up a bit. Like they were around like when I bought the camera, I had a lot of stuff that happened there. Then there was a couple of slow years when I got my job and now that everything is settling not settling down but that we want to experience more and we have more time to travel then we're just going back to that so i guess uh we'll have to have our decision soon ish want to talk about software yes let's do that so i think last time we talked about software we were sort of discussing what we've done since the death of aperture and spoilers Mm. i still haven't finished mourning the death of aperture um there has not really been a good substitute for the stuff I was using Aperture for, which kind of sucks. Uh, so I'm going to lay out the three main things I want from photo apps. I want quick multi-photo comparison with an accept-reject flow uh, for those photos when I'm ingesting them into the my photo library. I want custom adjustment presets, and I want beautiful presentation of my photo library. And my other sort of requirement from my photo management solution is I want it all on iOS. I don't bring my laptop with me when I'm traveling. I bring my iPad and the camera connection kit 
And having an iPad-based workflow means that I can incrementally deal with my photos as I'm traveling instead of waiting to get back home, uh, which is something you probably should do too, I'm thinking, because you don't necessarily process your photos the quickest either. Uh, um, um, what? 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 What are you saying? I, I would like to note, I would like to note that since I stopped using Aperture, I'm getting better at this because it's all on iOS. The guy, and I'm the guy saying that I still have like the GoPro footage kind of from two weeks ago on the GoPro SD card. So yes, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm getting better. I'm it's funny. I'm, you go on a lot of trips and then I never see any of the photos from those trips. So I can only on. say whoa, what I'm whoa, judging. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You've seen some of the Costa Rica pictures though. No. Really? Yeah. Those have been on iCloud for years. I haven't seen an iCloud link anywhere. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I can do that quickly, uh, in the next few days for you. In the next few days. Oh my God. Anyway, um, now that you're proving my point for me. I, oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go break down those three main things I wanted to do, uh, because I have something for each, uh, a, a solution for each anyway. So starting off with quick multi photo comparison with accept reject flow. Um, the main reason this is relevant for me is because I live in burst mode. Uh, for iOS photos, this isn't a big deal because the operating system automatically picks the best photo and generally it makes the right choice. Uh, the occasional time that it doesn't make the right choice, it's very quick to go in and select it. But I think it's happened like three times since I've started taking burst mode photos and like on my iPhone five. So it's not really a problem. Uh, for camera photos, however, there is no such automatic selection being done, so I need to manually select the best photo and trash all the others to avoid having a ton of duplicates. Uh, what I loved about Aperture is that it was incredibly quick to just select multiple photos, press a button, and you saw a grid of the same 100% zoom segment of all of the photos, so you could very quickly evaluate which one is the sharpest and throw all the other ones out. Um, on iOS, if you try to use the Photos app for this, it's absolutely terrible. Uh, you can't display multiple photos at once on screen to begin with, aside from the thumbnail view, so that sucks. Zoom state is lost when you are scrolling uh, or uh, swiping between photos. And it's never really clear to you as the user if the photo is blurry when you zoom in because the photo is bad or because you're looking at a pre-baked G- JPEG that is living on your device because you have optimized photo storage on iOS is actually quite aggressive at uploading stuff to the cloud and then dumping your original off your device. Uh, I have that happen, especially with like screenshots. You take a screenshot and then you go to share it and it has to download it from the cloud, even though you took it like three seconds ago. Like it does that for screenshots, but it also does that for your uh, original photos, which is why I tend to actually keep my iPad on airplane mode uh, for most of my trip, just so it doesn't upload photos to the cloud and then they magically they disappear from my device and I can't do anything with them until I get back home. On top of that, deleting lots of photos is tedious in the Photos app. Uh, you have to do a lot of taps and there's a confirmation screen and you have to do it individually for each photo. And it's you just tend to leave them lying around and then you wind up with library packed full of duplicates, which is exactly where I was. Uh, you may remember that last year before my Japan trip, I mentioned that I had a single digit number of gigabytes left in my iCloud storage to fill up with photos. And duplicates are the reason why. Whoa, meaning, meaning that you filled up like the, I guess you're at the same level as me. So it's like at 200 gigs. Yeah, 250 gigs and the entire iCloud storage was filled up. Wow. Okay. Okay. I guess now you can say that you take more pictures than I do. I do. I'm pretty sure I do. Um, 
so yeah, because the tools aren't good enough to let me deal with this problem at the source when I'm importing the photos, I have to deal with it afterwards. And uh, over the last month, I've been using Gemini by MacPaw on iOS to clean out duplicate photos from bursts that are taken with my big camera. It automatically identifies photos that are taken around the same time that look similar enough, and it considers that duplicates. Uh, it gives priority, so basically it tries to do a smart choice of which one is the best one, but if it can't do that, it gives priority to uh, favorites or photos that are marked as edited in library metadata, which is great. It means that your edited photos and your favorites are not going to be wiped away. I freed up 35 gigs of burst photos throughout the last month by using Gemini, so not insignificant. The one downside is that it doesn't handle iOS bursts. Uh, which means you can't tell it purge all of the photos that are not the preferred photo. And in fact, it turns out that most duplicate detection apps I found on the App Store don't do that, which is a problem because I have 2,300 iOS bursts in my library and doing each one manually will take fucking forever. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's going to... I'm surprised because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised that there's an API for that. There is an API for that because I have code that does it in my, <laughs> in my oh. source folder. Okay, so you just fixed it by doing it yourself, more or less. No, um, this is code that I was writing like on the tail end of when I was uh, an iOS developer. So I had started working on an app that would clean out bursts like that, and this is like Swift. It might be Swift one or Swift two code, um, mm. but yeah, it. I didn't revisit that code, but I know it's possible because I have code that did it at least once. So <laughs> I know it's possible, but nobody's doing it. Um, Presumably because nobody is taking bursts? I don't know. One of the things that Gemini does that I find pretty interesting is it detects notes, screenshots, and blurred photos, so you can easily de uh, delete them. Uh, what it considers to be notes is anything that basically looks like a piece of paper or a receipt or something like that. It'll just categorize that as notes and separate from everything else. Uh, screenshots obviously are screenshots. Uh, one thing that's cool about notes and screenshots is if you say, I want to keep this image, uh, the next time you uh, go into the screenshots or the notes category, the photo will still be there, but it'll remember that you want to keep it. So you won't accidentally delete the screenshots you were hanging onto that are important. Um, so that's neat. Blurred photos is also really great because I trash out a bunch of like, I don't even know how they stayed in my library that long, but a bunch of like the photo equivalent of butt dialing, <laughs> like whatever that is. I had a lot of those. Now, this is where we get to the business model. Uh, some people are going to find this unfortunate, but it is a yearly subscription or a rather expensive paid upfront option as well. I think there's also a monthly option, but like if you're going to pay for it at all, you're probably going to want to just get the yearly subscription. There is limited functionality available for free. I believe the notes, screenshots, and blurred photo detection is the free functionality that's available. So you can try it out with that and decide whether or not you want to trust it with right access to your photo library. I haven't had any problems on that side. And as with any other uh, photo deletion that is done via the Photos API, photos are moved to the trash, which automatically empties after 30 days. So in the case that there is a bug that nukes your entire iCloud photo library, there is time to undo things. It also means that if you want to recoup your storage space, uh, you really need to go clean, like really like empty the trash after you've audited the trash, more or less. Yes. Okay. Uh, so that's pretty much it for my uh, photo comparison with accept reject flow. Basically, the answer is I don't have a good solution for this at the source, so I've resorted to deleting duplicates with Gemini. Um, I would love to have something better. I think 
like I don't consider Lightroom to be uh, a solution because I consider Lightroom to be an all-in solution where like once you're in Lightroom, you sort of have to do everything in Lightroom. And I ideally want to do stuff without being locked into something that isn't photos. So let's move on to custom adjustment presets. Uh, it turns out that the photos that my camera puts out are actually quite good out of camera with no adjustment. Uh, but I have a personal preference that I like to play with the vibrancy of colors to give it a more film-like appearance. Uh, and I'm not talking so much about mimicking analog photography and light leaks and film grain and all the stuff that we regret doing to the photos we took in 2009 and 2010. <laughs> but I'm actually talking about like making the colors feel more true to how the colors felt in the moment that I took the photo. And if you look at a lot of film photos, I feel like film, depending on the type of film you were getting, it just comes out more naturally than it does digital. Um, and I, of course, this is always going to vary on depending on like what camera sensor you have and all that stuff. But I, I just feel like I need to tweak the vibrancy by a fixed amount to actually get the colors that I desire from my photos. And in Aperture, I had a preset for these settings that I could quickly apply to the images I had selected for processing, and then I could go in on a picture-by-picture -picture basis and fine-tune things. Um, for the past month or so, I've been using Darkroom on iOS to do this. Darkroom is a really neat app. It sort of can be used like a Lightroom-ish thing uh, where you can use it to manage your photos library, but unlike, Light unlike Lightroom, it is actually working on your photos library and not creating like this separate... Lightroom library, um, which is interesting approach, and I like that. I prefer that. There is one weird thing, though. So you can create presets with any number of adjustments. Basically, every adjustment that's available in the app, you can program as a preset, which is nice. Uh, the main issue I've noticed is that if you load raw images into Darkroom, uh, it depends where you're loading them, them from. If you load them from the app, you get completely different results from your presets than if you load it via the Darkroom extension in the Photos app. Uh, my personal theory for why this happens is probably when you're loading the raw image directly from the app, it's loading the raw file. And when you're loading it from the extension, I'm guessing it might be exporting a JPEG that is being sent to the extension instead of the raw file. Yeah, that I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that it would the extension would get a JPEG and not a RAW. But I wouldn't be surprised. Also, you can configure. It. Ah, I'm not. Hmm, I'm not sure if RAW is considered an accepted like file type for the share sheet and all of that stuff. I mean, it's hmm. pretty much like any other file format, except I don't know if. The darkroom extension only registers for certain file extensions or whatever. I, it's hard to tell because all of that is invisible to you as the user. Yeah, yeah. Or that it's the photo app that only exposes JPEGs when you use a share sheet. That would be really shitty. Um, <laughs> but not surprising. Yeah. But basically, the reason I'm pointing this out is if you're going to use darkroom at all, presets you make for one method of getting photos into the app may be completely unusable in the other. So try to stick to a single method for processing all your images if you want the results to be consistent. Uh, I've only found this to be a problem with raw photos, which is why I'm thinking it's the JPEG thing. Um, it, if you try doing it with JPEG, you get the exact same result, whether you do it via the extension or via the app. So your mileage may vary there. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised it does a conversion because now that I'm thinking of it, I've had issues in the past where you try to share a photo and then you see a spinner 
-hmm. don't see the share sheet. You just see a spinner. It's like processing your picture. I'm like, what the? And then I realized, oh, true. That's a, that's a raw. So but I it guess could also just be downloading the original off iCloud for all I know. If you have be. optimized storage. So it, it, the opaqueness of the Photos app makes it hard to gauge what exactly is going on. This is just an informed theory. Um, but this week, I've sort of been contemplating a switch to Pixelmator Photo. Uh, mm, Pixelmator I... Photo looks amazing. I haven't used it yet, um, but it looks absolutely amazing. And one of the things that has me really interested in Pixelmator Photo is it has a batch processing mode that allows you to apply your presets to a bunch of photos at once. And if you combine that with my previous point, uh, being able to quickly mark all of the keep photos as edited so I can just run through Gemini and flush all of the extra duplicate photos is a nice workaround to the lack of a good culling workflow at the moment. Oh, I see what you're trying to do there. You'll, you will literally only edit the one you would like want I, to keep? I pre-edit by applying the preset and then I just go back to Gemini and I say, okay, delete all of the unedited versions from this import and boom. And then in theory, you could also remove the presets on photo that it doesn't really apply, but that you only use the preset as a, f a flag that says edited more or less. Yeah. Huh, that's, that's clever. Yeah, so it, it's a life hack and it just seems like a more flexible tool and... It looks like the presets that come with Pixelmator Photo are very good too. So it's, I'm gauging it. I haven't quite taken a decision, but I'll probably just buy it before the end of the week and give it a shot over the weekend or something. And if I like the results, I'll probably stick with that. And I just look, it's literally six ninety nine Canadian dollars. So quite cheap. That's ridiculous. I thought it was like 20 bucks or something. Uh, I don't know. I just like, I, I was trying to figure out. So, okay. MaxStories.net. I click on the link. It says Pixelmator Photo only on iPad, but it says six nine nine. It's grayed out, so I'm on the phone right now. But uh, I guess to confirm. But here I see six nine nine. Interesting. I'll, I'll definitely check it out then if it's that cheap. But I, I was willing to pay up to like twenty bucks for it, like because Pixelmator makes such great stuff that I wouldn't have had an issue with that. But whatever. Yeah, one of the things that I now looking at the price, I'm eager to uh, try is that it has like really editing in place. So you'll need to copy and all that stuff, uh, which is sometimes the most common flows on all of those third party apps on iOS, where they would have assumed, like you said, that they have a separate library or they copy your photo from the photo roll. No, I just want like aperture. I was modifying my iCloud photos. Yep. I want it to stay there. And it seems that that is, uh, Pixel Photo is at least marketing that, uh, marketing that it, they do that well. So whether it do it or not, that's to test, but it seems that they do. And Darkroom does edit in place as well. So, oh, yeah. I, looking at it right now, it seems that I've quote unquote bot slash downloaded Darkroom because I think it uses, for my scene, it uses a, a lot of in-app purchases to uh, enable. It's free with in-app purchases. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I might have to retry it. It's pretty nice. So next up is beautiful presentation of my photo library. And this is where we get to iOS 13 and Catalina because the photos app has really stepped up their game this year, especially in dark mode for a number of years, actually, I think since iOS seven or iOS eight. Uh, and I, no, I'm pretty sure that's when it started. Uh, they introduced like this concept of moments, which were like automatic groups 
based on location and time and maybe people who are in the photos and it's sort of hand wavy and never really made much sense and it never really resonated with me and for that reason i sort of always kept using albums that i made myself because i could never really trust moments to organize things correctly uh, moments have sort of gone away half to a certain degree like in the For You tab, you still have uh, event groupings. And generally, I found that the event groupings in the For You tab, even on previous iOS versions, were better than the moments it was trying to synthesize in the All Photos view. Um, but now it, they've sort of gotten rid of that in the Main Photos view. Now everything is based around time span. Uh, you have this segmented control that lets you choose between years, months, days, and all the photos. And... If you have years, months, or days, it will selectively show you uh, your favorites or photos that your phone evaluates are the most interesting. And that way it becomes a far more engaging way to revisit your back catalog of photos, which is something I don't do that often, but I, I am much more willing to do now that the presentation is gorgeous uh, and borderless and low chrome and all that stuff. Um, and I think really my end conclusion for like, photos app is if you're above average at taking photos the smart grouping features in the new photos app will do a pretty decent job of picking out the best photos and making your personal photo library look more like the photo libraries that apple uses to demo the photos app like it looks like you just take amazing photos and when in reality it just hides the photos that are less than stellar which is not a great not a terrible solution for that i guess have you had the chance to play around with uh, the iOS 13 and Catalina Photos apps? Not in Catalina. Uh, in iOS 13, I played just a bit. I'm, um, as we speak, also looking at it. And yeah, the, uh, I have good suggestion for you. Uh, I guess, yeah, I, I still see the memories because I have, like, I have a memories section and I have a lot of date, a lot of like of together, or like here I have an example, nights in Quebec City from some of the show I've attended, uh, like some portraits of somebody. Uh, so no, I think they're still doing a great job. I forgot. If there, yes, there are videos, so we could like just uh, play together. Like here I have a good example of uh, Tony and I and my friend Petra and his girlfriend Annie, since we did did a lot of trips together now they're kind of doing a, a, a an, an album called uh, like together from uh, 2014 2018 so it's quite cute i love so photos.app in general for the past few years uh it has in no the moment they added moments they also asked the user for uh push notifications and Literally, the main reason why is to uh, send you a notification when they create the, the phone has created a new moment. And in the times where it would notify me, I would really go look at it and look at the videos. And it's doing an amazing job. Like the promise that Apple made of saying, like, we will figure out the best thing, uh, the best photos, the best moment out of your photo library for you. I think they've lived up to that. Of course, some of those old photos are not the best ones, but it feels like it's capturing like what's important. It's either landscapes or like nature shots or just people. Uh, they, they really emphasize having you around or friends around. And that's what I like. When I get those notifications, I always tend to just say, like, I'll just like stop what I'm doing and just go look because I've like, it really reminds me, like brings back those memories and it's really great. 
I don't have to build those albums myself or those like kind of small videos. I don't really care about the videos. The videos are just good just to see the picture at that moment. I wouldn't build a slideshow with music and everything, which they do automatically, but it's really just at that moment. But just after that, looking at the extra pictures that it could have used around that theme, like it's really good. Like to con- uh, it's really good and it does its for its main job, bringing you back this point in time. Yeah, I think like the memories that are in for you, like those are fine. What I had the issue with was the moments that were in the main photos tab where it was trying to like group things dynamically. It seemed like it was using a different engine to try and group stuff together than what you were seeing in for you. And Mm. that grouping never really lined up with what I was expecting it to be. So I would just rather look at a flat list, like basically a camera roll or whatever of just like ordered all photos because it made more sense to me than the organization it was doing. Uh, memory is in the for you tab. Like I don't really look at it much. And sometimes I have like weird moments with the notifications because it's like, it's like new moment. Look back at the life of your grandpa. And I was like, did my grandpa just die? And my phone is aware <laughs> of it. And I'm not like, oh. why are you popping this up now? Like, it's just like Thursday. It's like no big deal. But like, Sometimes there's just weird stuff like that. Uh, in general, I think my trips confuse the hell out of, uh, out of the photos algorithm because it's like, I don't think it was made for like month and a half, two months trips. And then it just gets confused and it's like, well, I don't know if this is a trip. So I might split it up into multiple things or jam it all together. And it gets very confused. Uh, the, the other thing that sort of is unfortunate is, uh, geotagging. Uh, my camera right now doesn't have a GPS or anything on it. It sort of interpolates where you would be based on surrounding iPhone photos that you would have taken, which is better than nothing, honestly. But in the aperture days, it was just part of my import workflow to go and geotag every single photo that I took. And I can't really do that in the photos app as far as i know or i think maybe you can geotag it but it's like not in an obvious location you have to do extra work to go find it so you really want me to go there (laughs) i think i spent literally two days doing that with my costa rica pictures (laughs) because at that time and we have to uh, we have to see with ios 13 and macOS catalina but at that time so in 2017 you had to do that from the mac yeah also, you had to use Apple Script to do some of what I wanted to do. <laughs> That's terrible. And I know you love Apple Script. Oh, so, so much. Here's what was my workflow at that point. Like I said earlier today, uh, my Costa Rica trip was a good mix of iPhone photos and uh, DSLR pictures. So it was great because I really add like like I don't really care if the DSLR picture or maybe like like a kilometer away from really where they were. But now, because I had a couple of, like, let's say an iPhone picture every couple of hours, like I can still say, oh, this was around. So I would, what I wanted to get is the exact coordinate from the iPhone picture. Mm-hmm. But the UI in photos.app in the Mac does not allow you because it, it geolocates using the coordinate and then shows you a string. And the yeah. pin on the map. But to get that, the, the, the metadata is in the database. It's in the pictures too. So to get that, I had to 
run a script, like a service from Apple Script to, and it was literally, I would select the picture, then go to Apple Script, uh, the, the editor, right? Press run and it would oh, no. go detect the app, go detect, and I, I figured it out. I'm sure it's saved somewhere, hopefully. Uh, and like detect the current pictures, realize that it has a GPS tag, keep it in my copy paste. Then I would copy all of the, I would uh, select all of the other DSR pictures. I would open the, uh, ins- information slash inspector palette. And in there, I could just carefully copy the, uh, coordinate, press enter, and it will apply for all of those pictures. And even then, if, if, uh, let's say the conversion did something wrong with the coordinate, uh, sometimes um, the app, the Mac version of photos that app wouldn't like it. So I had to maybe do it a couple of times, but at the, after a couple of pictures, I can uh, kind of modify the Apple script and make sure everything worked well. So I was able to really retrace my trip even on the DSLR pictures. So now, like, for example, I've seen some of the pictures in moments saying, Hey, you were in Costa Rica and they were like nice, like sunset picture I took of Tony with my camera, but it knew it was like in this region of Costa Rica because I did all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't looked at how I could do that on iOS. I guess with this episode, now you remind me that I have more or less three weeks to figure that out. Well, I mean, like the obvious solution is if you don't mind doing it on the Mac, you can just use Huda Geo and a GPX tracker and it'll automatically like piece together where your geotags should be. Yes, which I could, I guess I could do. This kind of reminds me one of my original idea that I wanted to do when I started to learn iOS development, which is to just build that with the iPhone app. Uh, but I guess this code is somewhere. Like, it's worse than just having your Swift 1.0 yeah, code. Yeah, it's like Objective-C code and uh, probably and pre-arc. Like, yes, and it's like me from 10 years ago, so that's also a, a topic. But yeah, I, I guess what I could do is really... I've, I have a couple, like, literally, it's funny because uh, I have a shit ton of, like, photo management apps on iOS on my <laughs> iPad, and uh, one of my colleagues, which is also like a big photo nerd, is like literally making fun of me because he's like, you know, I do photo editing every day, more or less. And mm-hmm. he's like, I have less apps on my iPad to do that than you do. And you do sh- nothing every day, literally nothing. So I'm like, yeah, I know. I just like to try photo editing apps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I miss that was previously in iOS before iOS seven was there was a map view where you could see, you could basically just browse around your, an entire world map and see where the photos you took were taken. Uh, nowadays you don't really have that. You can go to the search tab in the photos app and you will see like little tiny thumbnails of maps locations where you took your photos. No, but but you do where, so you go to album. Why? You, scroll, you scroll a bit. Oh, and there's a section Christ. of people and location. The first, the first uh, cell is people. The second cell is location. I don't know what's the exact lo- uh, translation because I'm it's really... people and places. Okay, um, but and yeah, then okay. you have a live map. Well, there you go. They buried it. Um, but yeah, okay, <laughs> that, that's good because one of the things that I actually really did enjoy back in the like iOS five, iOS six days was looking at my map after coming back from a japan trip and seeing that my reach in japan had expanded since the last time i went Mm -hmm. Uh, and especially this year it'll be even more significant because i'm going into two more prefectures that i've never been to before Uh, so it, it 
I really like having that visual aspect of being like, where can I go to next that I haven't gone to, uh, to try and spread out throughout the map. And, uh, well, I guess now that I found it, I can't complain about that anymore. Yes, you cannot complain. I'm giving you reason to not complain anymore, so you should be happy. Well, while we're talking about not complaining anymore, maybe we should end the show. (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) That's a strong way to end your topic, but sure. I mean, there's not much else to say. I mean, like these are the ways that my workflow and my hardware has changed since the last time we did an episode. If you have any suggestions for us on what the hell to do with our hardware, please get in touch. Yes, and when you start to get this episode, you'll have literally more or less two days to send those suggestions to Yannick before he leaves for Japan. Well, I'm not buying anything before going to Japan. No, but if it's app or like a fl- uh, the workflow modification. That's true. Yeah, you have two days to play with it and then make sure it works and it, you like it and then bye-bye. Or it can just be like you and download all the apps onto my device and not <laughs> use them. True. And on that note, I'll wrap it up. So if you want to find all the show notes and all the links that Yannick mentioned today in this episode, you can find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 123. So one, two, three. If you want to go through our back catalog of episode, especially episode 86, I say that and I forgot to take note, but I think that's the last time we talked about uh, photo management. Let me quickly search. Yes. 86, yes. Museum of your life. That's when I went back to this evergreen topic about photo and video management workflows. And you can find this back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. If you want to know when we'll be back, so it's in early, it's in uh, mid-November. I forgot the date exactly. But if you want to make sure you don't forget the date, like I November 24th. Good. If you want to keep uh, in touch with this date, that will remind you a lot in the next few weeks, even if we're uh, on vacation and enjoying our fifth anniversary not recording podcast, you can find the podcast on Twitter at, at limipo underscore podcasts. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And I make no guarantees that there will be photos with me and the Subaru mascot this time around. And on that note, I wish you an amazing trip in Japan. And we'll see you in about a month. See you in about a month and a half. <laughs>